This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it, help spread the word, and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Several years ago, when violinist Emily Bruskin and her twin sister, cellist Julia Bruskin, were part of a joint program between Columbia and Juilliard, they lived on Claremont Avenue in New York City. That's how they became the Claremont Trio. They have a fairly new pianist now who's working with them, Andrea Lamb, and you'll find out more about her and how they're all celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Claremont Trio this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker. Emily, you are the violinist in the Claremont Trio. Could you tell me about the other members in the ensemble, too? Absolutely. Um, The Claremont Trio, it's me and my twin sister, Julia Bruskin. Um, And we formed the trio more than 20 years ago now um, when we were all students at Juilliard. Um, And it's been an amazing journey to play together as a trio for that long. Um, Julia and I have actually been playing together a lot longer. We grew up in a very musical family with parents who liked to play string quartets with us when we were seven years old. And we started playing trios together, actually, when we were young, too. We had a, a trio through middle school and high school with someone we grew up with in Boston. But the Claremont Trio started in 1999. And our pianist now is Andrea Lamb, who's an incredible pianist. Um, Julie met at the Yellow Barn Festival in Vermont, and she started playing with us in 2012. And she's Australian originally. She's from Sydney. Just such a a beautiful pianist and a a wonderful, fun collaborator. And we've had a great time. Actually, some of the first music we learned together were some of these um, commissioned pieces that are on our new CD, Queen of Hearts. Both uh, Sean Shepard's trio and Gabriella Elena Frank's folk songs and Helen Grimes' Three Whistler Miniatures were all commissioned um, around 2012 when we performed them for the first time, did the premieres at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston in 2013, I think. It's so exciting to commission a new piece and to play brand new music that nobody's ever heard before and to work with the composer, sort of figuring figuring a new piece out, figuring out what inspired them and what's cool and exciting and gorgeous about this new piece of music. So, Can you tell me why you're called the Claremont Trio? Sure, yeah. Um, when we formed the trio back in 1999, Julie and I lived on Claremont Avenue in New York, um, which is a street. It's uptown near Columbia University where we were students at the time. Uh, it starts at 116th Street and parallels Broadway going uptown. And actually, we were living in a Columbia dorm at the time that was on Claremont Avenue. Though another piece of trivia, um, at the time we were doing a joint program between Columbia and Juilliard, and Juilliard used to be located on Claremont Avenue also before it moved to Lincoln Center. So they've got a Claremont connection as well. You formed this ensemble in 1999, as you said, and your latest recording is celebrating your 20th anniversary. So it sounds like maybe this got delayed a little bit. Yes, we recorded the CD before the pandemic and then everything shut down and got delayed and delayed and delayed. Um, and we're, we're finally uh, released it just this past month. But yes, it, it was it was recorded for our 20th anniversary, but it, it takes a while sometimes to get these things turned around. Yeah, well, you and everybody else that was impacted by the pandemic in the recording world anyway. Can you talk a little bit more about the Claremont Trio Commissioning Consortium and how it came about? Because I'm guessing that we're hearing a lot of what that consortium does on this recording. Yes, that consortium is is basically a collection of our 
family and close friends who wanted to help us to commission new music. Um, it's it's our parents and our aunt and uncle and a, a very good family friend of ours. It's um, Sam and Debbie Bruskin and Bob and Jane Morse and Ron Sampson. And they all love music. They love the Claremont Trio and they believe deeply in our, our commitment to to commissioning new works and to, to having new music added to the repertoire. They also, they love the old stuff as well. But so when we had some of these projects in mind, some of the pieces on the disc were commissioned by festivals. There's one that was commissioned by Chamber Music Northwest in Portland and one that was uh, the Great Lakes Chamber Music Festival. Um, they were having a big anniversary and they commissioned a bunch of pieces for groups that had played there. And let me see, the last one, oh, Nuka Mulis, um, that we just, the group did ourselves early on. That was the first piece we ever commissioned actually. But the art consortium basically is just very expensive to commission new music. Um, it's a lot of work for a composer to to write a new piece, and so they're donors that we went to for help when we wanted to to get some new trios. The six composers represented on this new release are all of your generation. Why is that important to you? Um. Well, I don't think it was absolutely critical to us. I mean, we've certainly played music by composers of other generations. Um, our last sort of newer music CD was called American Trios, and we were recorded both of Leon Kirshner's trios, which he's not our generation so much. And, and we've certainly, we, we've played a lot of music. Um, but I think maybe composers of our generation are sort of, a lot of them are just friends of ours, people that we've known for a long time and, and feel very connected to um, from our own personal experience together, um, people that we grew up together, people we went to school with. I think people who've had some similar life experiences to us might write music that we connect especially well to, though I don't know that that's necessarily true. We certainly play music by people who lived in very, very different times and circumstances. And I, I think one of the cool things about music of all kinds is that you can connect to it from so many different angles and eras and contexts. But we definitely feel a connection to these particular composers. Most of them are our friends and colleagues from a long time. And well, what, I guess maybe a better question is you decided that your 20th anniversary album would celebrate living composers. Why did you want to do that? Well, I think we wanted to, I mean, there's there's a lot of people who've recorded the Brahms trios and the Beethoven trios and the Mendelssohn trios, and we wanted to do something really distinctive. And we've been really committed to commissioning our whole 20 years. And I, I think it it's kind of fun for us. It, it takes us back to one of the pieces from 2008, and then there's some from 2012, and one from 2016. And it sort of brings us back to memories of different points in our career when these pieces were written, when we were working on them, when we played them a lot. And um, it was kind of a fun way for us to revisit some of those experiences over our 20 years together. The title of this recording is Queen of Hearts. There's also a piece of music on this recording um, that is called Queen of Hearts. How does this piece, perhaps, represent the Claremont Trio? Well, Queen of Hearts is is the name of the piece that Kati Agosh wrote for us, and it's, it's an amazing piece. It's all in one movement. It's this very spiritual journey. Um, Kati's a very, like heartfelt, um, intuitive, spiritual composer. She's a singer herself, and, and the piece is this sort of long, emotional journey. I, I think it's something that 
we really enjoy playing. Um, we're an all women group um, and she she likes the symbolism of the Queen of Hearts, sort of the, the power, the resilience, the, um, the femininity of that. And we thought it would be a fun title for the disc. Resilience is at the heart of this piece. How is it represented in the music, that concept of resilience? Well, she uses what's called a chacon in the music, which um, it's basically a, a repeating bass line that goes throughout the music. She, she uses kind of an alternating um, figure, but there's a sort of a something that you come back to over and over um, over the course of the piece. And she takes you on a, a really long journey where sometimes it's almost not recognizable, but that same sort of familiar underpinning is there over and over again. She, when she was writing the piece, there were some challenges in her personal life and, and she found the idea of a chaconne coming back to something that you know, something familiar, something dependable, sort of helpful. And a, it's a beautiful a way to write a composition because it, even when you're sort of wandering very deep in the woods of the middle of the piece, you, you feel like you, you know where you are, you know where you want to get back to. And I think coming back to that sort of personal resilience, your, your inner strength um, to deal with challenges that you face. is a, It's a very powerful idea and really beautifully represented in her piece. Nico Muley's piece, Common Ground, has like a ground bass in that piece, which is provided by the piano. Is that where the title comes from? Yes, I think that's that's he was definitely thinking of ground bass and that, that uh, sort of a similar to the Chacon idea. Um, it's it's a very old form um, in music, and he he uses al- almost a baroque sounding bass line in, in parts. Um, also to kind of tie different sections together and to give it this this older feel. I think that's part of what he's looking for. I, th- I think also. He uses kind of the piano and the strings in opposition to each other sometimes in that piece. And I think Common Ground was also referring to those two elements, finding Common Ground, the the piano and the strings, finding ways to work together, despite there being sort of different sounds and different ways of making sound. He was the first composer you ever commissioned a work from. Why? Why was he the first composer that you worked with? Nico was actually, we were all students at Juilliard together. And um, at Juilliard, everybody everybody played in the orchestra sometimes. And in the Juilliard Orchestra, I, I got to play one of his pieces. He had a, a I can't remember the name of it now. It was more than <laughs> many, many years ago, probably three, 30 years. No, not 30 years ago. When would it have been? Like 2020 years ago, around the time that this trio was starting. Um, but I, I played one of Nico's pieces in the Juilliard Orchestra and just thought it was really fun and great. And a few, few years later, when we were look, thinking about who would we like to commission, so well, let's ask Nico, let's see what he would come up with. So. There are three Whistler miniatures written by Helen Grime, and they're Three different moods, three different tempos, and lots of interesting colors, literally, in this piece. Could you talk about these three little pieces? Sure, absolutely. Um, When we commissioned Helen to write her trio, um, 
it was, we were commissioning pieces to sort of commemorate the grand opening of a brand new concert hall in Boston at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, um, which is this gorgeous museum with lots and lots of beautiful art, but also a long tradition of holding concerts. And um, Isabella Stewart Gardner herself loved art and also loved music and presenting concerts. And they had for a long time presented concerts in an old space in the museum, but they decided they wanted a brand new hall. So it made sense for her. She wanted to pick some art from the museum to inspire her for this for this piece. And she picked out these three Whistler miniatures. They're, they're little watercolor paintings that are very beautiful, sort of impressionistic with very subtle color palettes. And Helen's music is kind of like that. It's It's very kind of evocative. And as soon as it starts, you feel like you're kind of in another world. She, she writes so beautifully and it's fun to look at the, the actual, you, you can go find them online um, and to sort of imagine how she translated the, all those different colors in watercolor into music. Sean Shepard also wrote a piece for the opening of that new concert hall at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And he wrote a piece to accommodate the unusual hall. Can you talk a little bit about what he did and how he made use of the hall as part of the piece? Absolutely. Um, the hall was designed by the architect Renzo Piano, who's amazing, and it's a really cool space. It's an unusual sort of a shape for a concert hall. Most concert halls are kind of a rectangular box with the performers at one end, the audience in front of them. But this is actually, it's, it's square shaped and quite tall. And the performers sit right in the middle of the hall. And then there's audience members on all four sides um, with three, I think, three layers of balconies going up. So most of the audience is sitting above you, some of them quite far above you. And Sean named his middle movement of his trio Calderwood, which is the name of the concert hall. It's the Calderwood Concert Hall. Um, and in that slow movement, it's it's a beautiful movement. And there's all these sort of like arpeggiated figures that just rise further and further up. kind of reach to the to the sky or to, uh, up to the balconies. When you play in that hall, rather than the sound just kind of bouncing off the back wall, it, it kind of wafts up through the balconies. And it's a really, it's, it's a special experience to hear music there. And it's kind of fun to have music that tries to play off of that shape, particularly. Um, it's a beautiful movement. Judd Greenstein wrote a piece called A Serious Man. It's really a lovely piece. And it starts out kind of seriously, but then it becomes more whimsical, and that has a lot to do with the person for whom he wrote the piece, which was his uncle, who had kind of a serious side, but a, a fun side. Can you talk a little bit about this work? Judd Greenstein wrote A Serious Man as a memorial, a kind of a tribute to his uncle who had passed away somewhat recently. And he says that calling it A Serious Man is is a little bit of a, I don't know, it's, it's a funny thing because his, his uncle was not especially serious. Um, he said that he was actually a very funny man, but he took certain things in his life very seriously, um, his commitment to his family and his community. Um, but I think in the piece, he definitely has some of the very boisterous, fun elements that, that 
made his uncle so unique. As well as kind of the contemplative mood that you would think about someone maybe who had passed away recently. Judd's piece is also sort of a beautiful arc where you go on this, this journey of his thinking about his uncle, reflecting on his uncle, remembering his uncle. Um, there's very joyous music, which you might not necessarily expect from a memorial piece, but also some, some very poignant, tender music. Gabriela Lena Frank draws inspiration from her mother's homeland of Peru for the four folk songs that are featured on this recording. There's two in particular that really jumped out at me. One is the second folk song, which is a children's dance. And we're hearing some really fun imagery in this piece. Can you talk about what we're hearing? Sure, yeah. She, um, I guess, got to visit Peru with her mom some and remembers children playing games just out in the street. Some some of them sort of chasing each other, some with little, little instruments that um, they played. And there's a lot of pizzicato, little plucked notes. Things that pop out all of a sudden to surprise you. You can definitely sort of picture children playing sort of slightly naughty games sometimes. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, very boisterous. The third song is a serenata. And this piece represents kind of a Peruvian pub, so sort of the opposite of kids playing in the streets, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about what we're hearing in this piece? Absolutely. It's a serenata, like a serenade, somebody serenading you. It's sort of like a love song, probably. The, the piano has this beautiful sort of sensual melody. And the string instruments, we actually put our bows down for the entire movement. We just, we pluck the whole time, like we're guitars or something um, accompanying the piano melody. And it's got this lovely sway to it. It's all fives and sevens. And it's a, it's a beautiful movement, really evocative of the, the flavor of a night in Peru. If you want to talk about the other two folk songs, you're welcome to chime in and say a little bit about them. Oh, sure. Um, the very first folk song is um, Canto para Maria Angela. It's it's basically a song of the, it's a bell, um, this sort of big old stone bell that was in the, the town square of a place she used to visit. Um, so you can hear sort of the clanging of the bell. There's these big piano chords that it opens with. It's a fun movement. It's very heartfelt, very deeply emotional kind of music. And the last movement is Chavin de Huantar. It's got a really beautiful cello solo at the beginning. It feels kind of ancient, the way that she sets the stage. It's, she's describing these like huge ancient ruins, like gigantic rock faces that she used to visit. That one's kind of terrifying in a way, very stark and bleak, but also very emotional.
beautiful music. How different do you think it is for you and your sister to have formed this trio with all women? Do you think the experience would have been different if you would have, wouldn't have been an all-female ensemble? You know, it's hard to say. I think the specific personalities involved probably matter more than the gender of the people involved. Um, I think I've certainly collaborated with men who've been wonderful to work with, and, and it wasn't necessarily such a conscious choice at the beginning. I, I think, I mean, my sister and I are so deeply connected in so many ways. I think we definitely sought out a collaborator who we felt like was just on the same wavelength with us in a, a lot of different ways. When you have a group together, I mean, you obviously the most important thing is to to have sort of similar musical impulses, but you also do a lot of working together and discussing things together and making decisions together and planning parts of your lives out together. And you want to be compatible people in a lot of different ways. So I, I don't know. I definitely, I think it's important that women be represented on the concert stage. And I think it's important that women composers be represented. And I hope that we can inspire young women and music students to feel like this is, I mean, I think these days it's certainly a career path that's open to people more than it was for Clara Schumann or Fanny Mendelssohn or somebody like that. But I, I do still think it's important that people see that, that women can, can make these things work. Even after they have babies and lives get complicated and stuff, we can still be touring, performing musicians. I'm also curious, as a chamber musician, how does having a twin impact the way you communicate? Or does it? I mean, you and Julia are sisters, but you're also twins, and we hear about that special connection that twins have. Do you feel like that is unique to you when you're performing? You know, we've been playing together our whole lives. We've been so close our whole lives. It's it's a little bit hard to separate, like, do we actually have some magic twin telepathy that we wouldn't have with some other person we've been playing with for the last 40 years? Or I, I don't know. Um, but it's definitely, we've been basically best friends our whole lives. We shared a room for 20 years and an apartment for years after that. I mean, we've just been so close for so long. Um and we've played so much music together and we've rehearsed and performed together so much. I think just that depth of experience and we have similar personalities, but very distinct personalities, I would say. Um, we're identical twins, but we're definitely not the same person. So it's definitely, I, I think, a strength of the group. And also, I don't know, just that we're we're so committed to to doing it together. I hope that Andrea never feels like the odd one out, but... <laughs> There's certainly debates in rehearsal where she and one of us go up against the other one. So it, it goes all, all different ways in rehearsal. When you started this trio in 1999, what was your vision for it? And how has that either evolved into what you dreamt it would be, or perhaps did it become something different than what you thought it might have become? You know, my sister and I have always played chamber music together since we were little kids. It's just always something we've done. And I think when we started the trio, it was just sort of the next incarnation of how we would play together. We, we were students in school at the time, and I don't think we actually started with a, 
a big picture idea of where we wanted to go and that we just loved playing together. And I think it was actually as our career kind of took off and we started performing more that I realized how much the performing element was was important to me. Like when I first fell in love with chamber music, it was my parents used to host like just chamber music reading parties in our house. Like they just invite their friends who played instruments over and everyone would play through music because we loved it and it was fun. And my love of performing came a little bit later, actually sort of after we started the group, um, being able to sort of share that love of chamber music with other people and how much fun we were all having playing this music together and putting it together. And the, the language that you can, chamber music, it's kind of like, a little conversation you can you have your part and everyone has their parts in there it's a little bit like talking and i think oh, i don't know once once we started sharing music with other people we sort of got excited about all the different kinds of music that we could share with people and having commissioned a few works we kind of caught the bug of that i was like oh this is so fun like we get this brand new piece and we've we've been so lucky we've gotten just beautiful wonderful pieces every time we've done a commission and so it's it's a really exciting process in terms of I mean, with the group, I think it's just, I, I love music so much. I love playing chamber music and I love getting to share the way that feels with other people. The emotional journeys that some of these pieces take, I think these days it's it's rare that you sit with somebody for half an hour and really focus on the same thing. It's You're telling a sort of a complicated story that has a, a deeply emotional element to it. And I think there's something really special about people sitting down and going through that journey together um, in the same room. We, during the pandemic, we, we tried to substitute recordings and things online and concerts and stuff like that. And it's, it's different to sit in the same room with people and have an emotional experience together. I think it's hard to recreate that in other forms. So I'm really, really glad that we're back to doing that now. Emily Bruskin, the violinist of the Claremont Trio, talking about their new recording, Queen of Hearts, which marks their 20th anniversary as they share several works that they've commissioned over the past two decades. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Macher, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media.